I fully dreamt that like a big weird mascot was like creeping around my my doorway in my bedroom this morning. Like a sports mascot? Some like a cross between a sports mascot and like and like a big bird style suit. This is, once again, your green majority, Canada's most impudent, most impossible environmental radio show. We are on CIUT 89.5 FM or on your beautiful local community radio station or on the podcast website that you might choose to listen to this, this beast. Harbinger Media Network. I'm David Hostetter. I'm Stephen Hostetter. And I just had to Google impudent because I didn't know what that (laughs) meant. It means not showing due respect for another person. I mean, I am going to do that in a second for our mayor. Quote, unquote. He could have strangled this impudent upstart. It's like, whoa, that's... It's it's usually used for underlings who are talking out of turn, yeah. Well, there we go. Impudent shrew. Rock on. Impudent shrew. (laughs) I feel like shrew is always very gendered. Yeah, I think that's a misogynist term. We're going to do some environmental news. We're going to talk about the toxic rail crash in Ohio, some tar sand stuff, and we're going to do our uh, book club. Yes, our book club, our much, our much so uh, anticipated, anticipated. That's word. Much anticipated. Hopefully not maligned. Book club. Who's anticipating it? Yeah. Well, we well, are. we are. The the end of this world, climate justice, and so called Canada, which. Uh, we have all now purchased and read the introduction and first uh, first chapter, and Lauren's put together some great book club questions. It might crash and burn. If it does, that's fine. We're rocking, we're rolling. Right before we get into that, we just need to wonder, I mean, I'd like to know, what in God help us all? is occurring with Mr. John Tory. I mean, he... I do have a... This is my chance for impudicity, which I'm going to say is a word. That's not a word. A quick note. Impudicentary. Impudicentary. That's what Stefan has right now. All right, there we go. He's sick. Yeah. Uh, He's ill. So a quick note off the top uh, about the goings-on in Toronto City Hall, partially because they're bonkers. You don't have to call them goings-on. I mean, it's, it's a circus. Also because they should have profound implications for Toronto's ability to meet any of its climate goals and generally to be a city that people can live in. And so for those who may not be aware, here's the breakdown as short as I can make it. Last Friday, it came to light that the Toronto Star had been working on a story about how our mayor, John Tory, was had an inappropriate relationship with one of his staff members during the pandemic. By inappropriate, you mean sexual? Yes. Hmm. Um, he abruptly called a press conference and said he would be resigning. Over the weekend, we were treated to uh, the who's who of centrist sycophants 
writing pieces about how this was such a shame, about how sad it was for Mr. Tory, and a few of them directly requesting that he stay in power. Yeah, he's the one who said he was resigning. Yes. On Monday, we learned that Tory planned to stay in power until pushing through his abomination of a budget that continues his death by a thousand cuts to city services and more money to the police who have who, who apparently have four hundred thousand dollars to make a podcast. <laughs> they spent four hundred thousand dollars. Our budget's only slightly less than that for what it's worth. <laughs> That is arguably a worse use of funds than the millions of dollars they spend on the horse cops. And I hate the horse cops with a passion. And yet $400,000 to make a poorly edited police-based podcast. Maybe John Tory will hire us to spank him <laughs> for being bad. He will then walk away from the slowly crumbling city into the warm, welcoming arms of the private sector that he never really left. Because remember, he's been taking $100,000 a year from Rogers this whole time. To do what? He sits on their board. I often forget that in like the corporate world, board positions are paid because like <laughs> I'm in the nonprofit world where like you sit on a board and you get like nothing aside from some grief for it. And, and, well, and they'll ask you for money. Yeah, oh no, Hundo P. <laughs> and so there'll be plenty of other places to read into all this, but I bring it up for one specific reason, which is the upcoming by-election. The by-election to replace him will be the greatest opportunity this city will have for real, true change in a decade. Had Tory rode out his term scandal-free, you can be sure that he'd have lined up a successor and they would have had plenty of opportunities to fill their coffers for whoever that might have been. But now, Tory will have to stay well out of the race, and everyone is starting basically flat-footed. A by-election will also mean that turnout will be low, and so every vote will count more than ever, especially in a wide-open race where the winning candidate could get as little as 100,000 votes. This is in a city of 3.5 million. Wasn't your turnout this fall, like, 500,000? Like, something yeah. just bananas low? Yeah, 27%. And it's expected to get lower? Almost certainly, because it's a by-election. No one knows about this. They don't have any money to even advertise it. Like, And there'll be like 10 candidates, and like Tory only got like something like three or 400,000 votes in the regular election. And there'll be like 10 candidates and no obvious incumbent, right? Like it, it, It's a completely open race. And so if you're a person who lives in Toronto, there will be no better moment in perhaps your lifetime to get involved than over the next 90 days. And you, you can get involved in a couple different ways. Here's three. Dave earlier made fun of me for my pointed notes, but the three ways are... You got paragraphs, and he has a paragraph of bullet points. Yes, these are three bullet points. One, you can support a campaign working to improve the process. For example, there's currently a campaign ongoing to shift the voting in the by-election to a ranked ballot, which would mean that everyone interested and qualified could run rather than people worrying about splitting the vote, which is undeniably one of the biggest worries right now in terms of the progressive movement. Two, you could support a third-party organization that's working on the election. For example, Progress Toronto has already stated that they'll be working to ensure a progressive candidate wins and supporting their work, either with your time or money, could go a long way. Or three, you could support a candidate directly. Once they're announced, any winning candidate will need as much support as possible, especially those without ties to wealthy Torontonians, because to run a campaign covering the full city will likely cost upwards of $2 million. 
So if you were ever going to put in time, effort, or money, this is that moment. Are we going into... Let's go to a quick music break and come back with the news. We're going to go to music? We have a news jingle. Like... Mm. I do use a, a stock news jingle. Proof that I don't listen to the finished product of this show. <laughs> Not every week. And we're going to go to a song by Mr. Tristan Armstrong, a musician who has allowed us to use his music for our podcast, not just the radio. The song is called On the Run. Searching for a smile 
now we are going to our news segment. This is the Green Majority, and the Green Majority is now turning to its signature five Michelin-starred gourmet chef special news segment on CIUT. You can't, you can't, you can't be weird before you talk about a train derailment that 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 were. Yeah, you can't be too pervy, man. But that's why I have the jingle in between. (laughs) (laughs) The jingle is what saves us. There was recently a 50-car derailment of a train going through East Palestine, Ohio. 20 of the derailed cars uh, carried toxic materials, and 14 of those contained vinyl chloride. After crashing, spilling, and bursting into flame... All the cars were purposefully burned so they wouldn't randomly explode, which has caused a massive mushroom cloud of toxic gas and debris to form over the town. Official reports call the reason for the crash a mechanical failure, although this mechanical failure was likely caused by a new schedule that was implemented in 2019, which has severely cut train maintenance in order to squeeze more money out of the process. The train company is Norfolk Southern, owned mostly by banks and hedge funds, and the strategy is called Precision Scheduled Railroading. It means that they're putting their employees under enormous pressure to spend a lot less time inspecting the cars. Lambert Strether points out for naked capitalism that moving things by train is already a lot cheaper and more sustainable than trucking, because steel wheels on steel rails create a lot less friction. But the company hasn't been maintaining its steel, and so in this case, the bearings on one or more of the cars overheated and caused the crash. And not only that, but the pressure to make the trains run as quickly as possible means they're not thinking as much about the weight distribution of the trains, which also makes crashes more likely. Regulators corrupted by industry lobbyists were also not officially considering the train to be hazardous and flammable. And so the train was allowed to speed through small towns instead of going slower through less populated areas. The company did not send any executives to speak locally. And a reporter was forced to the ground and handcuffed while attending a a press briefing from the Ohio governor, simply for not shutting up quickly enough when the governor finally started talking. Joe Biden, of course, recently forcibly quelled a rail workers' strike that was calling international attention to the bad practices of rail companies. And the Federal Chemical Safety Board was gradually decimated by his predecessor, Donald Trump. Railroad Workers United, which advocates for union workers, is now calling for the entire rail network in North America to be nationalized. The the first thing about this story that stuck out to me is just how long it took for it to really break into mainstream news compared to the absolute frenzy over the balloons that we've all been subjected to. Um, and then when it is has been covered, much of the porting has mostly been focused on sort of the shock and awe parts of the story. You know, the giant oil, the plumes, the the potential dangers to to residences, the destruction of 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 the animals in the area, all of which are obviously important, but definitely leave out some of the stuff you've just mentioned there in terms of how this came to be. You know. Um, the story sort of feels like a giant lesson in what happens when you let capital run a country. And it's only going to continue to get worse in America 
uh, sorry, only get, it will only continue to get worse as America continues to refuse to invest in its failing infrastructure, while hedge funds continue to whittle down any of the other protections to maximize profits. I mean, you can find videos online of railroad workers in December before being legislated back to work by the Biden administration, directly noting that this kind of derailment could happen, and more specifically warning about how dangerous it would be if a train was carrying the types of chemicals that have now been burned in East Palestine, Ohio. Like, you can go back and really watch one of the workers who is, literally, he talks about how precision-scheduled railroading could lead to more derailments and will lead to more derailments. And then a few months later, it's exactly what happened. And since then... What's even more terrifying is that multiple other similar types of disasters have happened since this derailment alone. Like there's another train derailment and a couple other sort of infrastructure failing pieces. And we just must, must, must get off the track where we decide that we should shave off every safety protection or redundancy to maximize profit. And if we don't, you know, this kind of destruction will only become more and more commonplace. It's so frustrating to continue to see, like, like you said, like this is, this is a result of um, increased privatization of what was once based actually in the States. I, I shouldn't say that. I don't actually know if it was ever nationalized the way like CP or CN or whatever was here, but um, it's frustrating to see something like this happen when it's, when it was so easily prevented and predicted over and over and over again by the by the workers who know the industry and know those machines best. But when it's an industry that has had cuts over and over and over again and cost cutting all across the board because it is such a heavily privatized industry. Um, and then what's going to in effect happen is you're going to have like the auto industry and the like the trucking shit, the truck the trucking industry turn around and point to it and say, look and see how dangerous it is to ship by rail. This is why we need to be sticking with vehicle, like single passenger vehicles for people. This is why we need to be sticking with like trucks to get cargo to it, to and from given places across this, uh, across the country. When, when in actuality, it's like, I don't know, trains are tra- trains don't have to be unsafe as long as you're not like overworking your laborers and underpaying your laborers and denying them breaks and denying them health care and cutting corners in terms of like keeping your equipment up to snuff anyway it's just it's it's yes it's exactly what you said it's just like the, a spiraling downward situation of of unfettered capitalism basically and it's incredibly frustrating because what we need now more than ever is a robust well-funded well-resourced rail system obviously throughout so-called Canada, but but throughout North America at large. Yeah. And, and Canada is obviously not much better in these scenarios whatsoever. And what's funny is that I literally just, uh, as you were talking, opened, uh, opened Twitter and saw a new headline saying that CBS News has learned employees working on the Ohio train, which caused the toxic crash, were concerned about excessive weight and length in the days before it derailed. And so like, this is what's happening. You know, you're getting these warnings again and again and again from the workers, and they're being ignored because hedge funds don't care and because they can continue not to care. And one of the things I find about rail specifically is that, like, A, it is so much safer than driving. Like, it's like 20 to 70 times safer than driving, something like that. It's it's bonkers safer than driving. But it is also sort of designed, like, because it because it's so expensive to delay the track, being a track or train company leans itself towards more of a monopoly 
you know, like because of the it's unlikely people are going to build a whole second track beside whatever you're doing. And so if you control those particular things, it's a lot easier to bottleneck and then like just suck at as much money as possible because you're so important, which is why the Biden administration was so scared of rail workers going on strike, because if rail workers did go on strike, like America would stop functioning. You know, in the same ways here we saw the Wet'suwet'en protests, the minute that, uh, you know, land defenders started blocking railroads, that was the minute that the entire feds got terrified because like their pressure points on the whole economic system and so and the fact that we let random companies own them is is asking for disaster that that's the thing it's like that right there there's a million reasons why it makes sense to nationalize these industries and like that's one of them this is this is one of those situations there's a lot to there's a lot of like when you're like i don't know having conversations with different people about transitioning the economy and what it looks like in a lot of cases it has to be um like like you hear like people that are proponents of like microgrids and small scale and keeping things independent and keeping things small and tight knit communities that provide for themselves kind of thing. But like a rail system is something that actually like for the reasons you said needs to be nationalized, needs to be because because the alternative is a monopoly whereby they are in no way beholden to anybody other than their shareholders and have no impetus to institute. I don't know even like the the most basic of safety mechanisms because why would they bother there's nobody to compete with them so it's yeah it's for that reason that like nationalizing our rail systems is like so necessary or in in Canada's case at least reverting to a nationalized system i believe yeah exactly and uh, i re- read that <clears throat> and now is the time to buy norfolk southern stocks on the cheap because their their profits will not be hurt long term Exactly, because they own the they own the rail. Like this thing with this, it's like we've created a system where destroying a small town in Ohio is a business opportunity. Or like, I'm sorry, Lac Megantique was like what less than sure. a decade ago, and it was it was like not not a similar situation. People died. It was it was a terrible terrible tragedy as well. But like again, a situation where it was like you have a big company that is beholden to very few people when it comes down to it. Speaking of which, we'll do our second news, second and final news story. Um, resource extraction in Canada's oil sands is being expanded uh, with a $1.1 billion project from a company simply called International Petroleum Corporation, which will produce 30,000 barrels a day by 2026. Another company, <clears throat> Senevis Energy, is planning a $2.4 billion expansion that will begin producing in 2031. Senevis apparently plans to be offsetting all of its emissions with carbon capture technology by 2050. It was found in 2021 that some oil companies, however, view offsetting and carbon capture as a facade to continue selling oil for as long as possible rather than a real way to stop their business from destroying ecosystems. Meanwhile, now that major oil companies are making more money than they ever have, they are walking back their climate pledges. Yeah, I mean, file this under never believe anything the oil industry says and stop giving them any money whatsoever. Like, they are not going to be part of the climate solution. They will continue pumping oil until we force them to stop. That is the only thing we can do. Let us do that already. Yeah, no, this is one of those stories that left me feeling kind of despondent because it was like this story about the Synovus project that's like, what was it? The first time in five years a new major oil sands projects has been has been approved. But then we also have that in tandem with big oil having like their most profitable year 
ever. And then also there was a story out of the National Observer earlier, I guess last week at this point, that was talking about how um, like even even though technically environmental nonprofits had a, like a really good year for lobbying, it was still like a drop in the bucket against the billions of dollars that the oil and gas industry spent on lobbying. And then on top of that, all I was hearing about on Twitter on Super Bowl Sunday, or at least on maybe the Monday after, was all of my colleagues being like, oh my God, did you see the Pathways Alliance ad? taken out during the Super Bowl. Like, it's just, I don't know. This is one of those situations in which it's like, it's just a reminder that we are up against such an insane behemoth. And I was so frustrated reading. It was a, it was a CBC article talking about um, how profits were higher for big oil than ever before. And they, they have like a, a heading here that says red ink has a silver lining for environmentalists. The sea of red ink all over the books of big oil has a silver lining. It forced them to increase their commitment to go green as they pondered their future in the world of clean carbon-free energy. And it's like, no, 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 it didn't actually. That's, that's not what's happening here. Like the pathways Alliance, again, we we've talked about them a lot, just mentioned their super bowl ad. They don't exist to actually help these companies transition. What they do is greenwash and advertise and put out the message there that these companies are trying to go quote unquote net zero. And all that means, and like this is a quote I'm pulling from like a press release somewhere, is meaning that oil produced beyond 2050 would incorporate emissions reduction removal technologies like carbon capture and storage. It has nothing to do with these companies ramping down production. It has nothing to do with these companies like stopping what it is they're doing. All it all it's talking about and all of the I don't know, the silver lining that CBC seems to think exists is is that these companies are are investing in, I don't know, not even real removal technologies, removal technologies that are inefficient and don't really exist at scale and likely never will exist at scale. And it's just greenwashing. And meanwhile, they're doing a hell of a job lobbying about it too, because they just have all the money in the world to lobby about it and all the money in the world to put out ads about it. And now I'm bummed. It's okay, because next we have book club. Yay. And it's called The End of This World, which is great. And now we will go to a little bit of music and return talking about the book The End of This World, Climate Justice, and So-Called Canada. The Green Majority is entirely listener-supported. And we would take this opportunity to graciously thank every individual donating to our Patreon page. Thank you very much. And I'll take myself another opportunity and uh, remind everyone that we are a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, including other great shows like Left Turn Canada, Big Shiny Takes, and North Untapped. Thank you so much for listening. And we are back with the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM or your local community radio station or your podcast platform. And we are doing our book club. Much anticipated. It's Stefan's first book club ever. Smell that, those pages. There. That's our ASMR.
I think I'm getting nothing from that. I can't even hear that. You didn't hear that? No. I heard that. You might be getting better quality than we are. That was the sound of a book being opened. And we have read the introduction in the first chapter of this book. Seth and Lauren interviewed the authors a couple weeks ago. We have the introduction. We have the first chapter called No More Broken Promises, Asserting Indigenous Sovereignty. And Lauren has compiled a few questions for us to consider. Yeah, we're keeping it nerdy. We're keeping it structured here at Green Majority's first book club meeting of 2023. Um, So yeah, like Dave said, uh, this is something we're going to be, I don't know, trying to do on an ongoing basis, seeing how it goes. If you have managed to pick up a copy of the book, which I highly encourage you to do from your local bookseller, if you live in Ottawa, Perfect Books on Elgin is my fave. Octopus Books on Bank, also great too. Um, But no, because there's only seven chapters in this book, it's not actually going to take us very long to get through as as a unit, especially if we stick with the like two per week thing. So I don't know when our next book club meeting is, but we'll, we'll figure that out and we'll let y'all know. But, um, but yeah, so every couple of weeks we're going to get together, read a couple chapters and we'll have, I don't know, a bit of a chat between the three of us. And then hopefully, um, if you're following along at home, it encourages you to read the book and please, of course, uh, get in touch with us either via Twitter or Instagram or email. Keep it old fashioned. If you have any questions or comments on the book or things that you would like us to speak about, um, going to try to make this as interactive as possible. Um, so yeah, uh, like Dave said, if you want to learn more about the book in general, go check out the interview from a couple weeks back. Um, we had a lot of fun doing it. It was a great hour. Um, but now it's our turn to chat. So First question, keeping it very, very general. Um, the So we have our intro in our first chapter, and our first chapter is all about um, treaty rights and Indigenous sovereignty uh, and the ways in which that sort of shapes and, and forms the forms the relationships at play here. Um, they spend a good deal of time kind of going over the history of treaties in so-called Canada um, and the ways that our settler colonial governments, the federal and provincial governments have really disrespected these treaties. At one point, European settler colonial understanding of the treaties is referred to as transactional. Um, and that understanding being juxtaposed with indigenous understandings of those same treaties. So like the quote here is kind of summarizing indigenous approaches to to treaties are indigenous peoples did not believe that one could own the land. Therefore, the sale of the land did not make sense to indigenous peoples. Treaties were regarded as land use frameworks and agreements for sharing the land in mutual coexistence. Um, so in what ways do you think this sort of fundamental misalignment on sort of the very concept of a treaty based relationship is kind of reflected in in dominant settler culture relationships with the land um, and can maybe be understood as a driver of climate change. Yeah, so I think this question sort of gets to to the heart of of where I think colonial structure goes so wrong um, so quickly. And it's nothing nothing anyone who has, uh, you know, listened to or read anything on the subject is going to be surprised by, but I do think it's it's a useful basis to start from, um, which is quite simply that um, ultimately it comes down to how the different cultures see the natural world, um, and I, and natural world in this I'm I'm using it actually as a really broad sense. I don't just mean say plants and animals. I mean everything. Um, rocks, inanimate objects, everything, or at least things that we would call inanimate objects. And 
Um, and specifically, you know, because having a relationship with the land is very different to owning the land as one gives agency to uh, to these to land and everything else, while as the colonial mindset sees everything as only a means to an end, you know, a tool to be used. And the thing about the distinction is that if you have a relationship uh, with something, its agency is always a part of that distinction or uh, of that discussion. Whereas as the colonial capitalist structure sees growth and expansion as its goal and everything else as a tool to get to those outcomes, it, um, it's, so it becomes very simple to see how the destruction of the natural world sort of becomes inherent with that mindset. You know, like we are, we are not in relationship with the water or with the trees or with the land. We are using them so that we can have houses and whatever for ourselves. And that, I think that, and that, I think that, that goes back to how you could never imagine, you know, like it would, I think even someone in a colonial experience could be like, I, or even, I mean, not entirely, but I think at this current moment, say anyone in so-called Canada currently could pretty easily say that, like, I couldn't sign a treaty that says uh, Dave is now somebody else's property because he obviously has a relation, like, our relationship is not, is is one of, uh, is a relationship and not of ownership. And and so you could imagine how easily if someone else tried to make a deal with me about something like that, you know, it wouldn't compute because that would be, you know, slavery or of some nature, which is not, you know, which is against our moral code and therefore something that we wouldn't consider as a possibility within the conversation. And so I think that that does sort of tie back up. You can see how how the understanding of relationships would keep you from believing, oh, you couldn't possibly want to just like own and destroy this land however you like, because that's not, a, that's not keeping with any sort of relationship whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I was also sort of thinking about it within the context of like a person to person relationship and, and the ways in which it's like, yes, there might be, there's always give and take in a relationship and there's sharing, but it's, 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 you wouldn't, for instance, describe your relationship with your mother or your brother as transactional. That would feel cold and dehumanizing and inauthentic. Um, and in and, and the same way that that I'm sure a lot of indigenous viewpoints of, of settler colonial relationships with the land would also fee- feel cold and inhumane kind of thing. But um, but Dave, any thoughts? Well, in terms of the misalignment, I think the problem happens the second the two, um, the second the conversation begins, because, um, so so you highlight when she says that there's no, there's no ownership, right? Um, but in in order to engage in the dialogue at all with our culture, right, which is based upon ownership, that the the idea of ownership is is already brought in from the very beginning. And so, for, and so then, so they have to, and so, and so, a First Nation has to assert something similar to ownership, simply to have, like, uh, simply for there to be some sort of understanding about, like, you know, who's in control of this land, because we, as a dominating culture with all of these weapons, now need to be like, all right, who's in control here? You know, um, for instance, like, on in in right before that is stated in the chapter, um, there's like a block figure about um first nations inherent in treaty rights 
and they write that by the end of the treaty-making process, indigenous peoples had confirmed at least the following collective rights. And one of them is, uh, this is under the subheading, Right to Land, Air, and Water. It says, indigenous peoples own and occupy our lands and territories, including all natural resources. And so it's like, simply in order order for there to be any sort of coherent discussion, and because it's being conducted in the English language, uh, some some notion of ownership creeps in. And I think maybe a way of correcting that at this point would be to um, move towards indigenous languages and perhaps perhaps the introduction of indigenous languages into these um, negotiations uh, in, in perhaps in order to like re-understand the notion of treaty because I didn't realize that treaties existed before uh, like between First Nations it's not it's not it's not it's not introduced just to european just to european settlers it's like they already had treaties and so treaties between two first nations is much different from a treaty between a first nation and a settler government and so um yeah m- maybe maybe the introduction of non-english languages would help us approach the treaty the treaty idea better yeah well well and you make a really good point about language there because it's like i think that's not not the benefit not for the benefit of settlers but like but that's one of the reasons that so many indigenous nations are so insistent on making sure that their languages don't die out because language is so um key in shaping one's understanding of of the world that surrounds them um that concept of ownership i feel like i'm going back a long ways now to like geez like a like a modern political thought course from undergrad and i cannot remember if it was mill or hobbs or Locke. apologies to those professors because i can't i can't remember um which which thinker it was but it, it it was the idea that in the west society is predicated on a notion of ownership and actually like it was the idea that the whole reason that we came together in the first place and provided mutual protection was to actually allow for protection of the landowner and protection of the capital owner as opposed to i don't know contextualizing our, our our relationship with land in literally any other way in the west it like like you said it, it was always sort of founded on that on that context of ownership yeah i think i think Locke makes that argument he says that like in order to be good stewards of the land he was trying to make an argument where it's like the only way we can protect land is by having private property because otherwise we're not going to want to protect the land he argues that human beings will not take good care of the land if they don't own it was his, was his argument yeah yeah it's it goes back to like the whole like fallacy and like misunderstanding of the concept of like the tragedy of the commons and how like that is so fundamental to 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 the western way of thinking when in actually like the tragedy of the commons like from what i understand isn't actually a thing um anyway kind of riffing off of this and we were already talking before we started rolling today about how like none of us actually have an answer to this question i just it's something i've been thinking about a lot lately because um a lot of what we think of as the environmental movement is actually like the white settler environmental movement. And we are like, we, uh, we are people who are, who are byproducts of, of the European um, systems that we were brought up within. Uh, So like, in what ways do we feel the environmental community has or hasn't really come to terms with the fundamentals of indigenous sovereignty and indigenous rights? Um, When we're looking at a movement in which white settlers take up an inordinate inordinate amount of space, what does it actually mean for us to accept the truths of these these rights of of indigenous sovereignty and adapt accordingly? 
and can we do that? Or given that so much of what we understand as environmental philosophy is based in like Judeo-Christian notions of stewardship and, and those concepts of ownership that we were talking about, is there a fundamental incompatibility there? Um, and I've been thinking a lot about this in the context of, of, of my day job and my work. And, and when we talk about making spaces more quote unquote, like welcoming to indigenous folks and wanting to work in solidarity with indigenous folks, I sometimes wonder if maybe white settler organizers and white settler organizations are actually just looking for assimilation um, of those peoples in various capacities. Yeah, obviously. I mean, I, I think inherently that's definitely going to be a part of the undercurrent of any action led by, you know, the Canadian state, like the colonial institutions. And if there's one thing that I found most I don't want to say shocking because it's not something I knew before, but I think this was reminded of. It is the amount of which the Canadian state, uh, or so-called Canadian state, however you want to put it, did not uphold any of the treaties. Like, just an unbelievable, complete abdication of responsibility in terms of what was agreed to. And so, like, even when you, even if you want to make the colonial pretension that we agreed to trade this land and that was the understanding, so now we quote unquote own it, even, which I do not ascribe to. Clearly, it was predatory in many ways and awful. Even if you want to give the Canadian state that much credence, they still basically undermined every part of the treaties after that. And so, it part of the conversation, I think, undeniably has to be upholding sort of these the 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 rights that indigenous peoples agree that were that was agreed to for indigenous peoples from the jump and and we're not even coming close to that right now it's not even a conversation around that right now um and the, but to answer your question a little bit the closest i can come to is that i think ultimately we need to build new tables in that i don't think any sort of inviting you know the and if you want to do a state to state relationship or you know if if true indigenous sovereignty is to be found then we need to set up systems that are not based on the previous systems you know like we can't have the canadian government as it stands now hold a consultation with sovereign nations you know at best maybe we want to look at something you know like an assembly of people from across, you know, that uh, that from across uh, the land, that's more similar to what a citizen assembly might be or something like that, where you do include, you know, settlers and indigenous peoples um, and and have that conversation allow for going forward in some of these areas, because I don't I, I truly don't think you're going to get to the transformative changes you need within these systems. You know, it's sort of why you even see things like voting reform fail unless it's given back to a system outside of the system because because it won't, it won't be done. And so I do think that there's an element almost universally going to be of uh, of colonialism until you start agreeing to entirely new systems with these sovereign states, uh, which are or these sovereign peoples. And and from there, maybe you could get somewhere. And, and have real conversations that could allow us to continue in a way that is not as colonial. But until you do that, you're, you are definitely... The, the, the colonialism is so baked in that I, I, I think you're, it'd be very, very difficult to get entirely out of it. 
Yeah, no, 100%. Dave, any any thoughts on that? I was going to take it a different direction. So I don't know if you want to respond to Stefan first, but. No, no, take it in a different direction. Um, well, I was just going to note that in this chapter, there's a there's a an emphasis on spirituality and interconnectedness, an idea of interconnectedness, and I think it's uh, what what you stated in terms of um, the environmental, the white environmental movement and indigenous nations. Uh, there, there, there's not a, it's not there's not an incompatibility so long as we like manage to learn you know, from other cultures, like, and especially in ours, there is a, there is a deep yearning for an idea of interconnectedness, but we've reached out to the like Eastern religious traditions. We've, we've reached out to yoga heavily, uh, and Buddhism to have to, for, to bring ideas of, of profound interconnection into our lives and culture. Uh, for instance, Buddhism has like a notion of, um, dependent origination, which is that, uh, everything arises together, right? This, this, it's, not, it's not like a causal chain of, of, of a linear causal chain. We have this uh, network, which is inherently mysterious because of all the number of different factors that arises all together. And so it's like, it's not that it's not it's not that like um, you 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 can't have like Stefan without the idea of like there being a not Stefan. It's it's just is that Stefan himself arises as a as a as a as an environmental thing, right? He he arises as part of the environment, um, in the sense of like, um, he, he, it, it it happens simultaneously and together. Um, the 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 growing of like a being and so forth, and um, per, perhaps for our culture it's more appropriate to embrace the ideas that are already on that are that were already here right before we came instead of looking to the east or something like that but it's very difficult because we tried to eliminate that that type of thinking right and so i think it's it's needed to to make that kind of learning attempt however it uh, comes with the inherent uh difficulty because of of what we've attempted to to do here already and so it's not really an answer, but no, well, no. And, and, and how to do that in a way that isn't just, um, I don't know, replicating past patterns of like extraction and commodification. Cause like when a lot of the times, whether it is with like drawing on Eastern, um, religions and spiritualities and frameworks by folks from the West or, or drawing on the, the few times that, that folks do try to quote unquote, try, um, draw on, uh, traditional indigenous, um, practices and ways of knowledge of knowing and being here. It's like, it, it oftentimes is, is immediately commodified. It's like the thing that comes to mind is like when I was a kid and like every kid, every, every white kid in suburbia, I knew had a dream catcher where we were all running around in moccasins. And now it's like ladies with sage. And we're all like saging our houses, having no real concept of the tradition of that practice and no real tie to the knowledge or like the the land that the sage came from or, or or any sort of of the inherently deeper aspects of those practices um so yeah how, how do we do that in a way that doesn't just feel gross um stefan had mentioned kind of like an aha moment for him dave did you have any aha moments while you were reading these first couple chapters uh well just that <clears throat> just that i didn't realize that treaties 
uh, had been around for so long prior to European settlement. And there was this um, <clears throat> contention that um, because women played a traditionally big role in like large economic decisions and maybe political decisions in certain First Nations that it's uh, like in Canada's interest to make women disappear. And so the whole missing and murdered indigenous women phenomenon, women and girls phenomenon is, is suggested that it's like, uh, like a function of the state in order to further erode the, uh, whatever political structures would have been here prior to our, our coming. Right. Yeah. Because those women, whether they were mothers or grandmothers or daughters or whatever, but like were in in some ways like the fascia tissue that knit together these communities and and, and kept them functioning. Um, yeah. For me, it was it was there was a lot of treaty knowledge that like you think, you know, you think you have a decent understanding of. But like I realized it was quite a humbling experience. Um, oh, there was a specific quote that I thought I had. Edit that out. I'm going to go to my last question and we'll go to it really quick. Um, So for my last question for us today, um, in the intro of the book, because the book talks about just transition throughout, um, the concept of just transition is defined for readers. And it's stated that, unfortunately, governments in Canada have mostly treated a just transition as a series of labor market adjustment policies targeted narrowly at fossil fuel workers and communities. Based on what we know about the upcoming just transition legislation in 2023, being brought forward by Wilkinson, um, Minister of Natural Resources Wilkinson, and um, the Ministry of Natural Resources later on this year. And right now we know that it's being referred to by his office as the Sustainable Jobs Act. So it kind of appears that this trend of, of governments in Canada taking on a really narrow understanding of what just transition is, um, in either of your opinions, what is it about this narrow framing um, makes it so appealing to to the liberal government, and and why haven't we as the progressive movement kind of been able to push them to expand that scope more successfully? Um, thinking more so of of the just transition definition that the authors of this book take, which is a people powered transition from a fossil fuel based economy to one that prioritizes economic, racial, social justice, and upholds indigenous rights. And I mean, I think there's about a million answers to that question, but what's one that comes to mind? Yeah, I mean, I, I think. From my con- pulling from my conversation uh, with Dr. Laura Tozer a couple weeks ago, where we sort of discussed um, her research, which is really about trying to expand the understanding of what a just transition is. I, I mean, I, I think part of it has to be that the difference, even if you compare, say, the the Bernie Sanders style or sun or, or sunrise movement style Green New Deal push to. Uh, the fact that this is like the fact that this job at all is coming from Enercan, right? Like the natural resources uh, minister is putting forward this bill. That sort of inherently means that they are are really trying to keep the scope small, and and I think it's because we're not. I th- I mean it's because I think the liberals ultimately don't want to admit that all of these problems are connected. Like I think that's it. I think the liberals want to solve climate change, sort of by just, um, by by just getting our electricity to be zero carbon and hoping against all hope that some sort of CCS uh, carbon capture and storage works, and then getting to be like, okay, we did it. We can continue being basic neoliberals, but now we can 
wait until the plastics fill our lungs instead of climate change or some other terrible way that 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 capitalism is is rotting at the core of our of our societies will destroy us instead of climate change because they don't want to believe that that the problem is bigger than just carbon right the, 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 if the problem is bigger than carbon then their whole worldview is is a mistake and I don't think that they can hack that. I don't think they can they can accept that. Yeah, it's just it just fits it just fits into what what they already want to to believe. I mean, they don't, the, the stuff doesn't have to change as much as much that way. No, that's exactly it. It's that it's that it's in no way is it trans uh, transformational. It's not systemic, and it's the idea that that we can continue going on making a ton of money for a few very powerful people and continue to function exactly the way that we currently do, as opposed to this more transformative in scope, social justice rooted concept of just transition that would inherently shake things up too much and make life harder for Galen Weston way better for the rest of us though. But, but we're not the ones who pay for those votes. Um, anyway, that's all I have for today. And I think we're out of time. Do we know when we're going to, when is book club going to reconvene? I mean, I think we got to give ourselves deadlines or else we, we said, we said it would be once a month. I thought. Yeah. Or once every, no, I think we, once a month is too long. So we then decided it's slightly more recent than that. So I mean, every three weeks, like yeah, two, two regular episodes in between. Yeah, exactly. So that would make it March 10th. Okay. So yeah. So join us on March 10th. For our next book club day for the end of this world, climate justice and so-called Canada. Again, pick it up from your local bookseller. Um, and I feel like we should be ambitious and read chapters two and three.